Now, about a year ago, my wife introduced to me something called spaghetti squash. And I enjoyed it, and she would make it for me. And one day, I caught a bug. And I threw up that spaghetti sauce, uh, squash all night long. I mean, it was miserable. That was about four months ago. And just to smell it today, <laughs> still disgusting to me. Don't serve it, I said to her. I don't even want to say it. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 this week, we have been looking at a couple of different terms, that of justification, where we cross over the line from lost to saved, or an enemy of God to being a friend, and the term sanctification, which describes the maturing process all true Christians go through. We've seen the first is instantaneous, while the latter is a lifelong experience. As we pick up, we find that within Paul's question in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it, there are three sub-questions. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You're under a new manager, under a new master, under a new husband, as he will say in the seventh chapter. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, in that question, there are effectively three questions that are being asked. Three questions that will stop us in our tracks if we really ponder them. Have you forgotten what has happened to you? That's question number one. Question number two, have you forgotten who you are? Question number three, have you forgotten where you belong? Let's take them one at a time. First, have you forgotten what has happened to you? Look again in verse two. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Have you forgotten, in other words, have you forgotten that you've died to sin? Paul is saying you don't want to go around sinning anymore because you've died to sin. Now, this whole idea of being dead to sin is a theme that runs all the way through the chapter. I haven't underlined it throughout my Bible here. We just read it in that verse. If you look again in verse uh, 3, he says, all of us have been baptized into his death. Underscore that. Look in verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Underline that word. Verse 5. We've become united with him in the likeness of his death. Verse 7. For he was died is freed from sin. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. And finally, if you will notice verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Over and over and over again, he speaks of our death to sin, that we have died with sin. Listen, you can't get any deader than that. He's really underscored it here. So with that, we need to ask, what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin? I mean, we still struggle with sin. How is it that I am dead to sin? And so let me give you four interpretations as to how people have handled this. Three that I think are in error, and one that is certainly correct, that most conservative Bible teachers ascribe to, myself included. One view says it's a common misconception, not too broad, but the internet is filled with websites with people who still teach it. I checked this week, who say that when a man gets saved, that his sin nature is eradicated, that his sin nature dissolves. It's sheer nonsense. But there are still some crazies out there who teach this, that once you truly get saved, you will never, ever, ever again sin. 
That doesn't match experience, nor does it match what Scripture says. In 1 John 1.8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In the same chapter, in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the Bible is very clear that we've sinned. And we do sin. Now, they have a warped explanation for those verses, just like I showed you. Some of the limited redemptionists have a warped explanation as to why Jesus didn't die for all. But in 1 John 1, 9, remember he's writing to believers, save people. If we, Christians, confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not written to lost people, but to save people that they might have fellowship with John and his fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. But people sometimes take this view and they blend verse 2 with verse 6. If you look down at verse 6 in the body of the text, Paul talks there about our body of sin might be done away with. The Old English, the King James says, and this is where they usually milk it from, that our body of sin might be destroyed. But letting Scripture interpret Scripture... The Bible is very clear, and he'll underscore it in Romans 7, that Christians still sin. Now, sanctification is a process. And between the point of justification and the point of glorification, glorification happens when Jesus comes back, and in a moment's time, in the twinkling of an eye, you are made into the image of Christ, and your sin nature is forever gone, and you get a resurrected body. But between the point of sanctification and glorification, there's the process called sanctification, between justification and glorification. And God wants us to grow in that time, and there are some things that we can do that we'll see in a moment that we can slow it down. But the fact is, is that between those two points, believers still sin. That's going to be Paul's testimony when we come to Romans 7. Now, I don't know about you, but I've received the gift of God's righteousness. And with the gift of that righteousness came the gift of God the Holy Spirit to indwell me, and he made me alive. But like Paul, I recognize that nothing good dwells in me, as he'll say in a little bit later in verse 18, that is in my flesh, in 718. I still have my fallen Adamic nature. It's still very much alive. Though I think if I ever meet one of these people face to face, I'd like to spit in their face just to see how spiritual their reaction would be. Or maybe at least interview someone who really knows them well to think if that person thinks they're sinless. And they usually say, well, these aren't sins. These are just, you know, mistakes. Okay. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, another view, and again, the reason I only mention that is because there's crazies all over the internet who propose that point of view. Secondly, Another view is that some people have taught that when you get saved, that death to sin, that you've died to sin, means that sin has lost its allurement. They say once you get saved, I mean really saved, that sin loses its appeal. And every once in a while, you'll hear someone give a testimony, in essence, to that effect. They'll say, well, I used to drink, but God saved me. I never wanted to touch a drop of alcohol again. Or I used to sleep around with women, but I got saved and I never wanted to do that again. Or I used to beat my wife, but I got saved and I never wanted to lay a finger on her again. Listen, that is not only inaccurate, it's dishonest and it's less than biblical. And I hear people being paraded across our evangelical platforms with that empty testimony. And everybody, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. And they don't know their Bibles. 
Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible that when a man gets saved that he will never touch a drop of alcohol again. But to say that if a man's been saved out of that background and the allurement is forever gone is deceptive, inaccurate, and not true to Holy Scripture. Now, by God's grace, I rarely ever get sick. I've been your pastor almost 23 years. I've never missed a Sunday because of sickness. Now, there have been a couple Sundays, I have to admit, where I came sick and between services I threw up, but still, (laughs) uh, I rarely get sick. Now, about a year ago, my wife introduced to me something called spaghetti squash. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, man, this is fantastic. I'd never had spaghetti squash in my whole life. It's like when I moved south. I had never had black-eyed peas before I moved south. I had never had okra before I moved south. Um, Spaghetti sauce, fantastic. Uh, Spaghetti uh, squash, let's have it. And I enjoyed it, and she would make it for me. And one day I caught a bug. And I threw up that spaghetti sauce, squash all night long. I mean, it was miserable. That was about four months ago. And just to smell it today, (laughs) still disgusting to me. Don't serve it, I said to her. I don't even want to say it. Now, I'm sure, given enough time, I'll want that again. And that's kind of the way it is with sin. Sometimes people get saved and they are so disgusted with their past they think, I never, ever, 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 ever want to do that again. But the lure of sin is not dissolved. That's not what Paul is referring to when he says we have died to sin. Most of you have 1 Corinthians 10, 13 memorized. You should know it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. It's a good verse. One of a hundred, every Christian should know. But you should also learn the preceding verse when you memorize it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And it's preceded with the word therefore. In light of what I've just said in verses 1 through 11, where God highlighted Israel's failure, written for our example, for our instruction, he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. The allurement for sin does not dissolve. Paul will say in the seventh chapter, for the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not wish. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of sin and death? If you think that the allurement for sin is gone, and you will never ever again desire to do that thing that you say you will never do again, then you are testing the devil to test you. You're tempting the devil to tempt you. You are setting yourself up for failure. Now there's a third interpretive error, I think, in reference to how to understand this phrase. He, uh, we, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Some, especially those in the holiness movement, would say that the secret to the victorious life is to daily crucify the sin nature. Well, that's not what this verse is teaching. The problem is that their starting point is wrong. The mis- it's a misinterpretation because that way of thinking begins with man's effort rather than God's grace. Not to mention the illustration is wrong. There's one thing that a, a crucified man can't do. He can't crucify himself. 
But if you just read the text, it is clear in this chapter that he's describing not some daily crucifixion of the flesh. He is describing in this chapter something that has already happened. The one who's died to sin. It's a, it's a tense that describes something that is finished and completed in the past. It's over. It is done with. Now remember when we're in the fifth chapter, I told you this whole idea of solidarity is important for us to understand because it becomes the basis of Paul's argument in the sixth chapter. How that when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned in and with Adam. That's his point in Romans 5 and verse 12. When Adam sinned, all sinned. And that's the reason he argues that we are born with a sin nature because we're identified with the author of sin and death, namely Adam. When we come here to the sixth chapter, we're just cracking the door today. He's going to say, now we have a new identification with a new master. Not the first Adam, but the second Adam. That when Christ died, we died. When Christ was buried, we were buried. When Christ was raised, we were raised. If you look down in verse 6, he will say, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. He's not talking about daily crucifying the old man here. He's saying it's already done. The old self, the old man, was already, done, already been crucified. The King James says, your old self has been crucified. Now look again at this verse. How shall we who died still live in it? I believe the only interpretation that is consistent with the context is that he's dealing here with the reign and rule of sin. Look back at verse 21 of chapter 5. He says that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we died to the reign of sin in Adam, and we live under a new reign. The word reign in noun form, basileia, is the Greek word for king. Basileus is the Greek word for kingdom. Basileo, the verb here, speaks of a king's reign. That's why he's going to underscore in Colossians, we have been transferred out of one king's reign, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of God's beloved son. He's talking here about the reign of sin, that we now live under the reign of grace that happens when we receive Jesus as our Lord. Let me see if I can share an illustration. Suppose that you are on a pirate ship and uh, the captain of that pirate ship is a wicked man who rules and reigns over your life and over the entire crew. He orders you about like an animal. And then your government comes and he rescues you from that ship. And they take over the ship and they take that wicked captain and they throw him in the brig and chain him there. And yet while he's in the brig, that old commanding officer still yells orders at you, still insults you, still commands you. Now if you want to obey him, you can. But you don't have to. He can bark out all the commands that he wants to bark out, but you don't have to listen to those commands because the reign has changed. You're no longer under the reign of an old wicked captain, but under the reign of a new master. That's what Paul is going to help us to see in the sixth chapter, that the reign has changed. What he said in the end of chapter five, he's going to explain in great detail as we walk through chapter six that we've been moved from the reign of Adam into the reign of Jesus Christ. Something happened to you. Something in the past. You died with Christ. You are now identified with a new head. So justification, remember, happens in a moment's time. Sanctification is a process. 
and it takes time to grow up in Jesus Christ. So the first question, in essence, is have you forgotten what's happened to you, that you've died with Christ? And again, he's just introducing the thought. He's going to explain it. So please come back. I don't want you to miss a single sermon. And again, the plan of salvation is the milk of the word. The plan of sanctification is the meat of the word. And some of us, we're not really wanting to apply ourselves. And you're not going to see the change that God wants to bring about in, in your life. The second question is, have you forgotten who you are? And I say there's a second question because of the emphasis and the pronouns. In Greek, like other languages that model it, in a verb you have a pronoun. Like uh, in English we say we run, right? Two words, we run. Well, in Greek you could have one word that says we run. But if you want to emphasize the pronoun, then you put another pronoun in front of that verb that already contains a noun, uh, a pronoun. We, we were wrong. And that's what's done here in this verse. How shall we, we, who died to sin still live in it? How shall we, being who we are, still live in sin? He's saying, you now belong to the king. So get out of the gutter of sin and get up on the king's highway and begin to walk in this new life that he has for you. Which will bring us to the third question, which again he will unfold for us. Have you forgotten where you belong? You, you belong in a new kingdom under a new master. And you need to live in that kingdom. I was reading a, a pastor's journal that I've gotten for the last three decades even before I was a pastor and on staff with Campus Crusade, I began reading it. And I was reading about this um, experience that a principal had in a school in Oregon. And she was rather frustrated because the girls in the middle school there who began to use lipstick, they would go into the girls' room and they would put the lipstick on and then they would kiss the mirror. And there would be all these, you know, lip prints on the mirror. And she knew something had to be done. The janitor was spending a lot of time trying to get that stuff off. And so, suspecting who the girls were, and suspecting, too, that they weren't going to change because she had already made pleas, she gathered a number of middle school girls, and she brought them into the restroom. She said, maybe you're not doing it, but I think you are. I think you need to be aware of the fact that it takes a lot of effort and time, unnecessarily wasted time by our custodian for him to clean these off. And I want you to see just how he does it. So he took the toilet brush. And he dipped it into the commode and swished it around. And he went in and began to rub it all over the mirror. You know what? They had no more lip prints. <laughs> you know, some of us are kissing things that God calls filthy. And Paul wants you to remember who you are. That you've died with Christ. That he's brought you into another kingdom. Have you ever said to your kids, like we used to say to ours, our, we had one dog, Speckles, for about 15 years, that don't, don't let her lick your face. And they would just say, oh, Speckles, lick my face, and she'd lick the face. And, and they just never really got the message. And then one day, my two oldest boys, Jeremy and Jordan, they're watching Speckles sniff some places and lick some things that they thought was absolutely disgusting, and they realized that that's what dogs do. And they began to connect the dots. And they didn't let that dog lick their face anymore. Now, the phony believer, 
The antinomian lives in sin because he doesn't live to glorify God. He lives for the filth of sin. And he reveals the fact that he's never really been converted because he can't connect the dots in his unregenerate mind. But that is not to be true of the Christian. Now, let me just apply this as we close. Again, we've just cracked the door, but let me make some application from these first two verses. Number one, I learned from this text this morning that it is impossible to separate justification from sanctification. It's impossible to separate the two. There's no such thing as being justified, as being born again, as being saved, without also experiencing sanctification. There's no such thing as being given divine life without it producing a divine change. Sanctification, or what the King James calls holiness, begins the moment you are justified. It's impossible for it not to happen, for God the Holy Spirit to come into your life and not to begin to change you. Salvation is not simply a declaration, a transaction where God declares you righteous. It's also a transformation where God begins to make you righteous. That's why Paul will say to the Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, spanking brand new, a new person, a new creation. The old life has passed away and a new life has begun. So there is a death to sin that does take place. And if it does not show itself at all in holiness and sanctification, then you've got good proof positive to, real, to doubt whether or not justification has really happened. So that's the first application. It's impossible to separate justification from sanctification. Secondly, it is possible to slow down the sanctification process by choices we make. It's possible to slow it down. Again, in the opening verses, he asks some questions like, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Those questions suggest on our part some action points. Before we're done with the, the chapter, he's going to give us some specific action points. But while you cannot stop in one sense holiness, there will always be some genuine fruit of conversion. You can slow it down. Have you ever thought, well, I know I'm sinning, but I'm sure God will forgive me. I know I shouldn't be watching this or listening to this or be in this place. But God will forgive me because God is a God of grace. That's slowing things down, friend. And when he says the truth shall set you free, he didn't free you to sin. He freed you to a new kind of life. Maybe there have been times when you've even presumed on the grace of God and you say, First John, it's my bar of soap. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. Thank God for First John 1 9. But then in the next breath, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, because we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God's grace is amazing. And it is so unlike us. And the more we, we grow in grace, the more we discover how unlike God we are by nature. Someone hurts us, we withdraw from that person. We withhold kindness or, or maybe we even stop talking to them. Not God's grace. God doesn't withdraw from us. Again, it was God who sought after Adam it doesn't matter what law you've broken. 
You cannot exhaust the grace of God. And the more you understand that, you see, we can be saved by grace, but Peter tells us in his first epistle where to stand in grace. In the end of his second epistle, he tells us where to grow in grace. And some of us have been saved by grace, but we haven't grown very much in grace. But the more you grow in the grace of God, that, that God loves you unconditionally, that doesn't become an excuse to presume on grace. That becomes an excuse to live holy to please Him. And there's nothing more powerful for a holy living than the amazing grace of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Don't forget what happened to you. Don't forget to whom you are in Christ. Don't forget to whom you belong. And if you don't belong to Jesus Christ today, he wants you to. He wants you to take your hand of faith and put it in his hand of grace. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's Jesus dying and bleeding on a cross. He didn't owe us that. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. God had no debts to pay. That was grace. But you have to put your hand of faith in the grace of God. Faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust him. And when you put your hand of faith in the hand of God's grace, he will forgive you. He will become your redeemer, your master, and your king. Now, our Father, we bow this morning in the presence of the one who bought us with his own sinless, precious blood. The one who bought us that we might no longer be slaves to sin. I pray in the days and months ahead as we study this and this, these three chapters that you would really help us to get a hold of these truths. That we might grow in grace. And that you might have freedom to make us more like your son. I pray today for some dear person who's come here. And they don't have assurance of salvation. Because in the back of their mind they're not sure they're good enough. And your word has already declared they're not and they can never be on their own. That there are none righteous, no, not one, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Thank you, though, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul says, and I can say it with him, I am the foremost of all. Thank you that when we see what you really are, holy, 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 we see how unlike we are like you. Oh God, help someone today in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. God, it is our earnest desire that we live under our new master, under the new reign. Teach us how to do that. Like little children, we come and we ask you to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen again to today's study from Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, entitled, Freedom to Sin? Why not download our Search the Scriptures app for Android and iOS devices? They're available free through your respective app stores. Of course, you can always listen online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, feel free to call 877-787-7478 and request program ROM26. Freedom to Sin? Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. We don't charge for any of our online resources, 
But we do pay radio stations around the country, and we have storage and support fees associated with our worldwide presence on the web. Won't you consider becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation partner? Foundation partners come alongside Search the Scriptures on a regular basis and help sustain the ministry with a gift of at least $25 a month. If you'd like more information on being a Foundation partner or making a one-time gift, call us at 877-787-7478 or check out our Search the Scriptures app and our website, searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, we'll begin a look at how to really change. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.